0: So, let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today and always as we are going through these classes, help us to understand what it is that you want us to understand through Holy Scripture and in particularly the wisdom books that we will be covering in this session, we ask your blessing on our efforts today and always. Uh, as we strive to come closer to you through prayer and understanding of Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. So today we're going to begin a session, a 10-week session, if I can hold up, uh, on the books that we call the Wisdom Books of the Old Testament. And... Can anyone name them offhand without looking? <laughs> All right. We have Jab, Koheleth, Song of Songs, Psalms, Proverbs, Sirach, now it's called, we pronounce Sirach, not Sirach, as it looks, Sirach, and the Book of Wisdom. A couple of them go by different names. And that's okay. So in your Bible, you might have Kohalath listed as Ecclesiastes. They're the same books. The difference is that Kohalath comes from the Hebrew, Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek version. Alright, and there's a reason behind that. Alright. Also, the book of Sirach may be listed as Ecclesiasticus, a little confusing, but that's okay. Again, you have the difference between the Hebrew and the Greek, and I'll get into that in a few minutes. All right. The Book of Wisdom often goes by the book or the title of Wisdom of Solomon. Solomon will be mentioned many times. But I assure you, Solomon did not write any of these books. He may have influenced them, but he did not write them, even though a lot of uh, books might infer that or even come out and say that. The reason being here is that at the time that these books were written and in any ancient culture, writing or instruction was not a commercial enterprise. It was an art form, and therefore, the writer was very proud of what he produced. However, if he was totally unknown, it would be ignored, and therefore, he would attribute his writing to some famous person who already had a good reputation or some famous teacher. And because wisdom, because Solomon has always been known for his wisdom, and there's a whole series of that in the second book of Kings, or discussion on that subject, uh, in the second book of Kings, uh, and you can get look it right up on your own. Uh, That is why these books are attributed to Solomon, but I assure you, he did not write them. (coughs) Now, the other thing is, we have to understand what the term wisdom means. Let me give you a little background here. Several years ago, I was asked to give a lecture uh, at the the Anaheim Convention Center, uh, sponsored by the Charismatic Renewal uh, Convention that is held there every year uh, on Labor Day weekend. And the subject that was given to me was the subject of joy. And the reason I was given that, was because the theme of the convention, there was always a theme every year, the theme of the convention was the spirit of the Lord, or the joy of the Lord is uh, the spirit of wisdom, which comes from the, it's a quotation out of the book of Nehemiah, the prophet Nehemiah, all right? And so I wanted to know, or wanted to really get some kind of a definition for the word joy. And I asked a few people, and they said, oh, well, it's to be happy, it's to like this, it's to like that. Those are not definitions. Those are results. I wanted a definition. What does the word joy mean? So I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't find what I thought was a good definition until the morning of the lecture, and believe me, that kind of made me squirm a little bit. The morning of the lecture, the ending, of the closing prayer for that particular day was this. I wrote it down here so that I would remember it correctly. Father, help us to seek the values that bring us lasting joy in this changing world. In our desire for what you promise, make us one in mind and heart. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. The values, (coughs) the values that bring us lasting joy. So I developed this lecture called The Meaning of joy is an expression of our values. Look at it this way. How many of you have, say, gone to a movie with someone else and one of you likes it and one of you doesn't? Or two people have read a book. One may like the book and the other, "Eh, yeah, it's all right. Or you go to a restaurant. Somebody might just think it's wonderful and others saying, mm, it was so-so. That is, shows that each of you have different values and are appreciating that uh, in a different degree. Wisdom is very much like that. Often we use words in a way that doesn't truly reflect their meaning, their true meaning or basic meaning how often have we said well that guy is really bright or smart or uh, clever or shrewd (laughs) well those things don't really mean that he's also wise Uh, so we cannot connect we have to discover what is the meaning of wisdom in the context of these seven books, and I've developed, because I've read, believe me, I've read and read and read a lot of stuff, and I don't want to make all of you, you know, Bible theologians or scholars, I think you're just here for your immediate need. So I've developed what I call a working definition, and we'll use that as we go along during this session and perhaps tweak it a little by the end. And this is in your flyer here so you don't have to write it down. Wisdom is the ability to deal with life's experiences in a manner consistent with the will of God and the laws of nature and when properly applied It leaves the acting person with a sense of peace and harmony. In other words, we have to deal with others. Wisdom is part of the connection uh, within relationships. Wisdom is always exercised in dealing with others, that is what we're referring to. How wisdom can be used, or should be used, in dealing with others. And it will show that throughout all of these books as we go through them. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, the actions of a wise person may not always appear to be wise, because we can't please everybody, and again, our values are different. But the person acting uh, in a wise manner will be able to deal with that, okay. Now, why is it important that we know all of this, or that we have <coughs> the desire to go through and discuss and discover what wisdom is all about in a religious context. And it's because we feel that if we wish to deal with others in a way that God intended us to to deal, then we are coming closer to Him. And we do so through understanding what the inspired word of God is and how that can bring us closer to him. The other thing is, the end result of all of these (coughs) seven books should be a closer and a deeper way of praying. Quite often people have said to me, well, I don't know what to pray for. Well, just talking to God, as you would talk to a very close friend, is prayer if you are sincere and not just making something up, All right. But these seven books, perhaps even more than many of the other books of the Old Testament, will give us a lot of fruit for thought and hopefully fruit for prayer. And that is why I want to give Uh, you what I think is a good lesson in each of these, and bring them to your attention. (laughs) But there's a few things that we have to truly understand before we can really delve into a lot of these books, because they are all different. They're all in that one classification of the wisdom books, but they are very, very different. The thing that is is that they all dovetail back into worshiping God in one way or another. One of the things that a lot of people have questioned, and the reason why they are not the most common books of the old testament or even the new for that matter is that they don't they don't deal with our relationship directly with god they deal primarily with our relationship with other people they and some of them don't even mention god there's a few of them that don't even mention god Uh, but what they do is they Help us to develop a way of communicating with other people that God would highly approve of. And remember where God says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right? And so that is important. here. Another thing that you have to remember is that Judaism changed in many different ways. Uh, from the time of Abraham <clears throat> to the time of Christ. And in your handout, I have a flyer that, or a, a copy, it looks like this, except mine is all marked up for a reason. And many of you who have been with these classes uh, before have copies of this. But I want to go over it again and bring out some of the things that I couldn't put in here for lack of space. This was, I was confined to uh, time here and space. uh, But I'd like to add a few things. The time... uh, between Abraham and the time of Christ, is approximately, now all of these times are approximate, um, is approximately 2,000 years. But Judaism changed uh, roughly every 500 years, and I want to explain because those changes are reflected in the writings of these seven books. The first five hundred years, from Abraham to Moses, there was no writings whatsoever in on Jewish records or among the Jewish people. They lived primarily by the customs that Moses, or rather Abraham Uh, had recommended. But remember, they were uh, captives, you might say, of the Egyptian people for most of that time period. We are not sure of how long, but we feel that they were in Egypt somewhere around 350 years. But because there were no calendars that were common to everybody, In those days, there were no records kept, so we don't know for sure, but historians and Bible scholars generally tell us that they were there somewhere around 350 years, and of course, Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham and his family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., took up the remaining 150 years, all right? but there were no writings, there was no structure, there was no leadership, uh, there were no traditions actually uh, developed during that first 500 years. We know a little bit about uh, Abraham and his family, but very little about everyday details, uh, everyday lifestyles uh, of that time period. Judaism really didn't start to take form until the time of Moses, and after the release of the Israelites from Egypt at the time of uh, the great Exodus, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that is the beginning of the uh, structure that God wanted to implement with the Jewish people and through the Jewish people. This was to be a community of loving people who would then radiate the message that God gave them out to other nations. Well, we'll see where that didn't actually happen. But in the second time period here, from Moses to King Saul was a time of transition, a time of restructuring, a time of returning from Egypt to the Promised Land and trying to redevelop uh, a Jewish or a Hebrew, I should say, because they weren't called Jews at that time, a Hebrew community. Uh, and that is when structure began to take form, but again, there was no written uh, histories or records during that time. So for a thousand years, roughly, there was nothing actually written down. It wasn't until the third uh, period here, from David uh, to the Babylonian exile, It was through the efforts and the recommendations and encouragement of David and Solomon that the histories of the Jewish people, going back to whatever was known and carried along verbally throughout the centuries from the past, were written down. And they were written as histories, not as scripture. Sacred scripture of the Old Testament did not start out as sacred scripture. It started out as histories. It started out also at different time periods by four different groups. You had the group in the south called the the Yahwists. They were very strict uh, and they wrote out their ideas of what the histories of the Jewish people up to that time were all about. Then you had a group of people in the north. Remember after Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam, split the Jewish nation or the Hebrew nation into two parts. He didn't want to carry all that responsibility so he split them into two parts after his grandfather, David, had worked so hard to bring them all together. And so the north retained the name of Israel and the south became the uh, land of Judah, right, from the province of Judah that included Jerusalem. The histories then started in different locations. You had the Daoist in the south, the Eloist in the north, and then later on you had another group of people uh, called the Deuteronomist in the north. And lastly you had a small priestly group. The priestly group began in Babylon because there was no more king The whole idea of the kingdom that was set up at the time of Saul and David, God did not want them to have a king, uh, and he warned them ahead of time, and they insisted that they wanted to have a king like every other um, nation around them had, and they wanted to be like the other nations, and so God said, all right, but be forewarned. I'm telling you, there will be problems, and there were plenty of problems because the worship of the of the Lord got mixed up with the worship of the kings, and the kings took advantage of that and really went to town. If you read the second book of Kings in the Old Testament, you'll see that from Rehoboam on uh, to the last one that uh, forgot his name can because there was about 50 of them, Uh, just got worse and worse as far as taking advantage of being the king, uh, being very difficult uh, with the people, and becoming a god in his own name. Worship of the king became uh, worship of God, became worship of the king, and you had people like Ahab and Jezebel who really went to town with that and uh, ruined the people, causing the northern kingdom to be uh, wiped out by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C., and then later the southern kingdom was uh, conquered, by the uh, Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. And it was all because of their sinfulness and their turning against God and worshiping other gods. And much of that is reflected in the uh, books that we will be uh, studying this time. The priestly class took over while the people were in Babylon, because, as I said, the kingdom was destroyed and done away with. There were no more kings. That was the monarchy lasted uh, from the time of Solomon down to the Babylonian captivity and then actually disappeared. Later on, when we talk about King Herod, etc. That was something that was set up by the Romans and never approved really by the Jewish people or by God. It wasn't until after, well let's let's back up a little bit. While the people were in Babylon... uh, there was no structure, there were no leaderships. So the priest uh, that came along with these people began to pull the people together. And the one book that they did take, of course they took their histories with them, both in mind and, I suppose, records. Uh, but the one book that they began to study was the book of Deuteronomy, a book that they called the book of the law. which was the essence of the Torah uh, that came later. And finally, by studying that, if you know the book of Deuteronomy, it's a beautiful book that uh, sort of summarizes and pulls together all of the writings, uh, all of the teachings um, of Moses, and all of the things that were attributed to Moses That even came later up to the point of uh, around the 8th century B.C. And they began to see where they went wrong. Because when they were conquered by the Babylonians and carted off as indentured servants, uh, not slaves in the way we think of it, but indentured servants, to Babylon. They couldn't understand why. Why would God allow that? God promised protection, and so forth and so on, but because of their sinfulness, God permitted this, hoping that they would wake up. And little by little, that happened through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel and the priests Uh, that brought the book of Deuteronomy. And so they studied this as part of their, uh, you know, entertainment, because as indentured servants in Babylon, they were not free to roam, but they did have some freedoms. And they were able to have their own homes uh, as best they could, and they were able to have some free time. So during that free time, the synagogue system developed. And it was a house of prayer and study. That was the primary objective of the synagogue system. And that remained after they came back out of Babylon uh, to Israel in five, begin, beginning in 539 B.C., And the priestly class then sort of developed into a political organization that ran uh, the Jewish people who are now called Jews. And the way the term Jew came about was that they came back from Babylon to the land of Judah, as I said earlier. And they were called Judahites for a number of years. Remember, there were a lot of ites, meaning people from a given land. They were called Judahites, and gradually that sort of broke down to the term Jew. Okay, now, to use the term Jew to designate or recognize an individual and his or her uh, faith, or uh, background, is not a derogatory term. (laughs) Often we think, oh, I don't want to call a person a Jew, you know. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, if it's done in a respectful way. But a lot of people are concerned. and uh, So when I use the term, I'm trying to use it in uh, a respectful way recognizing people from that particular faith or location all right so the priestly class developed and was pretty much the ruling class for a couple hundred years until the uh, conquering by the Greeks remember the uh, Philip of Macedonia, the father of uh, Alexander the Great, uh, conquered most of that region, and uh, Alexander the Great then extended that. But when he died early, I think he was only like 33 when he died, uh, the kingdom sort of broke up into 10 different uh, little regions, and you had... Uh, The Hellenistic influence that came throughout the uh, Greek Empire and what was then the beginning of the Roman Empire throughout all of the Mideast and the eastern part of Europe. The Hellenistic influence was something that the people really liked, unfortunately, Uh, It was very uh, promiscuous, you might say, and uh, there were a lot of bad things that went along with it. All of this is reflected in these books in one way or another. And so you have to kind of be careful when you're reading that and hopefully remembering this because it influences the meaning of some of these things. We'll get more into that as we study each book uh, by itself, beginning next week when we study the book of Job. Uh, Job is probably the oldest of all of these writings, uh, and it's a very interesting book in itself. Any questions so far? Yes, Mike. Uh, So you said it it wasn't... uh there was no writings in the beginning. So I think you said in previous Genesis was they had a right Genesis because one had written it down. So that makes it historical, the fact that it was written after the event. Right? Will those books be considered, like the way we understand like sacred tradition or uh, it, it was passed down and uh, kept accurate like that? Or? Yes, in a, in a way I think Mike's question is, is important and interesting. As I said, in the first 500 years, there was no writings whatsoever. Uh, actually, in the first 1,000 years, there was very little writing, if any. Uh, that wasn't done until uh, the 10th century BC by either David or Solomon, most likely Solomon. Okay, We're not certain of that. Uh, But yes, the the writings were histories, and they were modified uh, by later writers uh, and later redactors, as they're called. And it wasn't until the 5th century, 5th or 6th century uh, B.C., that the book of Genesis was written. Now, the book of Genesis is probably the most uh, interesting and amazing of Uh, the early books in the history of Judaism because it tells us more about God the Father in the first 11 chapters than much of the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, But we, and we don't know who wrote any of those books for that matter. There's only one in here that the author really mentions the writer, okay, for sure. Uh, even the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And it was the, print, the priest Ezra who brought most of the Old Testament histories together in the form that we have them today. And we believe that it was Ezra or somebody under his direction or influence that wrote the book of Genesis. So Genesis was actually the last of the first five books of the Bible to be written. And the first five books are called what? The Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay? Torah in Greek, Pentateuch in, I mean, sorry, Torah in Hebrew, Pentateuch in Greek. All right? And they became... Those five books became the basis for Jewish history and Jewish faith. But they were not developed until the way uh, the way we think of them to today. Now, to even make matters a little more complicated, the books of the Hebrew Bible were all written, obviously, in Hebrew, but during the Syrian occupation and conquering of, Egypt, uh, of Israel, many of the Israelite people scattered to other parts of the country. The same thing happened when the Babylonians uh, overran the southern kingdom of Judah many people went to other parts of the world, primarily North Africa and further east into India, Greece, Turkey, and so forth, the countries that we recognize today. Uh, And in a time period around the second century, those people became more numerous than the people in Israel. And so they wanted to have the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek because after a couple hundred years, many of those people never learned to speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, and yet they remained faithful Jews. And so they wanted the Jewish scriptures translated into Greek. Uh, Well, there was a big debate. Uh, The people in uh, Israel or around Jerusalem were very ultra-conservative and wanted control. They didn't like that idea. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. uh, 72 men were chosen, six from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to come together and translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And then they went and added six books and parts of a few others uh, that were originally or were written in Greek. And that became the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament. So you had the Hebrew version and now you have the Greek version. All right. When we get into Christianity, Most of the converts were Greek-speaking rather than Hebrew-speaking. And so the Christian church continued to use the Greek or the Septuagint version of the Old Testament scriptures. And that was true all the way up to the 15th and 16th century A.D., when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and wanted to change a lot of the traditional Catholic things, such as the image on the crucifix and kneelers of the church and you know, many other things, the one thing that he and his followers did was they decided they were going to do away with the use of the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Old Testament and go back and use the Hebrew version. And all the Protestants afterwards continued with that. So that is why the Protestant Bibles are a little different than the Catholic Bibles. Because one is, the the Protestant Bibles do not have those books that were added to the Greek <clears throat> version of the Old Testament, Julie. <clears throat> I don't see. I don't see them at all. No. But come and join us. I will. Does that? Does that? You know. I've written a paper here on this for that purpose. Because I've been asked that question so many times. Why does the why do certain Bibles have more books than the others in the Old Testament? All right? And that is the reason. Yes. Yes, all the other books of the the Old Testament are the same in both. Yes, except ones in Greek and ones. And there were a few things added, Uh, let's say, for the book of Daniel. Chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 were added. And uh, there's a couple other minor changes or additions, but... Mostly those uh, six books. Yes. <laughs> well, that that's a totally different subject. But yes, I'll answer that as best I can. Uh, gradually, as Christianity. Uh, developed and moved out into other parts of the world. We had a similar situation where people, you see, uh, I have to back up, I'm sorry. Around the 4th century AD, the church took not only the Old Testament, but the writings that were available throughout uh, the world, you might say, uh, and brought them together to form a New Testament. There was no New Testament mm-hmm. until around the 4th century B.C. When Pope Damasus commissioned uh, St. Saint, uh, Saint Jerome, thank you, uh, St. Jerome To sort out all of the writings, and what St. Jerome did was had to have some parameters here. So he said, All right, we're going to take the writings that came from the apostles and a few others, but only those up through the apostolic era which was the end of the first century. All right. So he took those and that became the nucleus for the New Testament. There wasn't any New Testament written. Uh, there was just a bunch of uh, loose writings. And it was St. Jerome that brought them together and then translated the Old Testament as well as the New Testament into Latin. Latin You know, before that it was Greek. Then the language of the church changed from Latin. The word Latin actually comes from the word vulgar or vulgate. Or, you know, that is the term because it didn't mean vulgar in the way we think of it today. It just meant the very common language of everyday people. All right, so the Vulgate version of the Old Testament and the New Testament used by all Christians up until the 15th or 16th century, until the time of Martin Luther. And then people were thinking, well, why do we need the Latin version? Why don't we have um, the language of the Bible in English. And it was actually the Germans that did the first, but where the uh, St. James, and it really shouldn't be St. James, it should be King James version of the uh, New Testament or the Bible uh, should be addressed. That came from uh, almost a war between the Vatican and a number of people in England. And it was sort of a prelude to the break of Henry VIII, which came later. Uh, and that's how the Bible was translated by uh, the first um, king of the Tudor family, James the first. So that is where the King James Version was the first official version of the Bible translated into English. Any other questions? You'll see I'm a little controversial at times myself. Yeah, yeah. The, when you say that the Greeks added the books, so this was before there was any type of a canon? Yes. Yeah. So was it more of like.? Well, the, there was a
1: Greek canon. There was a Greek canon? Yes.
0: yes. Yeah. But there wasn't a Hebrew canon. No. So wait, the, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I, I'm, just the reverse. Yeah. There was a Hebrew canon. Right. And because there was a disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees were in control of it, and they said they did not want to pick up and recognize the additions that the Greek canon or the Greek version brought so about. It's kind of more of a, a struggle between the Hebrew-speaking Jewish people and the Greek-speaking. Yes. But then later on, the Catholic Church went sided with the Greek version of, yes. of that. Yes. Yes, because most of the converts. To Catholicism, spoke Greek, yeah, and that is what you know. That made sense, and the Greek version included these other uh, books, and we'll go into that a little more deeply as we um, get into each one, and so we'll cover each one of these books um, one by one so that we don't get them all kind of mixed up. I don't want to uh, be flopping back and forth here, I should say flipping back and forth. Um, next week we will be doing the uh, book of Job. All right. But before we get into that, are there any other questions? Yes. Latin came from, as I said, from St. Jerome in the 4th century, all right? That's when the Vulgate became the official language of the church. And all of Christianity, there were no other, you know, all of these small churches around, all of Christianity used Latin as the language of the church. And all practically all the official books of the church were written in Latin. And incidentally, even today, all official documents of the church are still written in Latin and have to be translated into the various languages. And there's a reason for that. It is to keep uniformity always in mind. Otherwise, if you start breaking it down into the various languages of the world, things start to break down uh, very much. And that is why every so often we have a renewal of uh, the wording in the church. You know, we just here a year or two ago, we had some minor changes. And that is always to bring back the wording of the literature uh, to uh, reflect the original or intended meaning. But again, Latin was the official language of the church by all Christian groups up until the Protestant Reformation. Jennifer? Jennifer? Yeah. Um, you said it was the writings up the first century sorry, maybe. Yes. Um, was that then, or were there some added later? Well, there were a number of writer writings that existed, but they were declared either not inspired or they came later. But that was the ending of the selection of books that went into the New Testament. That's never changed and will never change. Now, that doesn't mean that re- things written afterwards were not good or correct or whatever. It, it just means that they had to stop somewhere and they chose that particular time period. Yeah. Yes, Chad? Uh, I'm sorry? Was uh, Latin the language of the Romans? Yes. Yes, that was the common language of the Romans. You see, once Rome conquered Greek, the Greeks, and the Greek uh, Empire, they tried to break down the Hellenistic influence and make everybody speak the common language of the Romans, which was Latin. And that's why it got the name, the vulgar language. And that's where the word vulgate comes from. Yeah, the common language that was used by the Romans. Yeah,
1: but there were, even the Romans
0: spoke Greek earlier than that time period. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? All right, I want to get into the book of Job. Now, each week, you're going to be getting, as this shows in the last two or three pages here of your handout, you're going to be getting a home reading assignment, and this will cover the following lesson the following week. And we will, only in the third week will we be covering two books, because they're very short, and there isn't a lot to say about one of them. Uh, I should say there's not a lot of good things to say about one of them. But you will have not only an instruction as to what to read, but then you will have a summary of that book. <coughs> now, the summary is hopefully intended to get you to want to read more. But if you don't have the time, then it will at least give you a, a synopsis or a summary of what it's all about and how to put it together. Some of these books can become a little confusing as you go along because there isn't the same pattern. There's, uh, except for the book of Job, there's no story. Now, speaking of story, please, when you read the book of Job, it is a story. It is not historical or hysterical. <laughs> It is a story. It is a problem, a story problem that you are being asked to look at. So don't expect they lived happily ever after or something like that, because that is not what it's all about. It is a, well, scholars talk about it as being a masterpiece of ancient writing. And it has a lot of arguments back and forth. Job is a character that you might say represents all of mankind. So look upon it again as a problem to be resolved. And it may not turn out as you think or as you would like it to turn out but it is extremely interesting. I want to go through just a little bit of it here with you in the summary that you have here. The prologue is very important. Please read it, but keep in mind that it is a story. It is not historical. These, except for God and Satan, Job is a fictional character. He goes through three trials and a cycle of speeches by his friends. Friends in a very questionable way. Then you have sort of a mysterious character the name of Elihu. Try to develop in your own mind uh, the essence of what each of these friends and this character Elihu are trying to say. The whole idea here is that God is supreme above all creation. God does not have to answer to anyone for why he has done such and such. However, mankind, if he is really interested in worshiping God, can try to adjust his thinking, mankind's thinking, to accept what God has given us. Let me give you some modern-day th- examples. I bet there has been thousands of people in the past few weeks since the hurricanes in Texas and Florida that has said, where is God in all of this? You know? Why didn't God prevent this? Well, God has established the world in such a way uh, that there is a sphere called nature, there is another sphere called Excuse me, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Uh, there's another sphere called moral law. Uh, and then there's another sphere called mankind, and human, human nature, and so forth. These spheres will operate interchangeably. And when they do in an ordinary sense, we have peace and harmony. When any one of them gets out of line, we have catastrophes. But these are the way God made creation. And he's not going to step in and deliberately change certain things because he is expecting mankind to learn from many of these disasters, as well as good things, and develop our own relationship with others in a way that hopefully will please God. However, as we know, a lot of selfish people will take advantage. Like, I bet there's been many people who have been caught looting the damaged homes uh, in both of those states, okay, Uh, because they are not working in line with God. And yet we have seen at the same time how many people have braved or disregarded their own safety to help others. So that is what God is really trying to do with all mankind. Set aside yourself and help others. And that is what the book of Job is really trying to tell us. But you're going to see the negative side from the friend, the two friends, or is it three friends? Uh, And what we have to do is to say, no, that is not the way God intended We have to look at it in a different light. Uh, The other thing is, mankind was endowed with free will. If God stepped in to, uh, say, prevent a given person from committing a serious crime, at the same time he's taking away that man's free will, even though you would like him to do so, That would be against God's nature. And free will has its good points, but it also has its dangers. Again, that is part of the way God made creation. And we have to understand that. There are a lot of things that we don't understand about God, and yet I think by the time you get through reading Job, if you really read it well with those ideas in mind, you will agree with him at the end, even though it may be a little disappointing because you're rooting for Job to get back all the things that he lost. And he does. But that is more or less to please the the reader, I think, rather than uh, the way it probably should have come out. Okay. Any questions? I don't want to go through the whole thing because I want you to read the book of Job and then we will discuss discuss more of it next week after you've had a chance to read it. Okay. Yes? About when was the book of Job written? An interesting point. The question was, when was the book of Job written? Most scholars believe that it was written in parts, not as we have it today, but in parts going way back, probably to the, as far back as the 15th century BC. Remember, the people in those time periods loved stories. You have the tale of the Arabian Nights, you know, and Aladdin and the Forty Thieves, that kind of thing. Uh, they loved stories because they didn't, a lot of people couldn't read, and so you didn't have a lot of fiction. Um, you didn't have libraries in those days that were open to the public. They were only open to a few people who could read. So they would make up stories. And, you know, the more fantastic, the better. Uh, But they realized that these were just stories. Well, a lot of those have filtered down to us, and over a period of time, people uh, kind of assume that they are historical, and they aren't. This is one of them. We don't know exactly, I can't give you a date, but we do know that much of that story of Job existed long before other writings, and it was revised several times uh, until around the second century B.C. My thought was that with a verbal, you know, verbal story in the beginning, that it was comfortable. <coughs> Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Good point. All of these books, we have to remember, was written before the time of Christ. And so the Christian idea of love of God is not reflected in these. And you will, by the time we get to the end, there's going to be a big surprise that a lot of you may not be ready for. It'll come along gradually as we get into some of the the last three books. All right. Um, and I'm going to leave it at that because I want you to to have a sense that there is always more to come. Um, but you got to keep in mind that this was the time before Christ, but it gives us an opportunity to say how grateful we should be now that Christ has come and given us such a different attitude towards dealing with other people. So uh, one of the biggest problems that existed Uh, for centuries, up until the time of Christ, and Christ, Christ himself tried to change that, was the automatic thought that riches and wealth and education were a blessing from God. And anyone that possessed any of those things were in God's favor. Sickness, poor health, Poverty was because you were a sinner and God is punishing you. And that's the essence of the book of Job. But we know from the teachings of Christ that that's not true. (coughs) And you can have people who are wealthy and well educated being miserable inside. And you can have people who are very poor and have virtually nothing, but they are very happy and lighthearted inside. Madge? Uh, well, God give us our creativity, but he expects us to use common sense with it. Amen. You're right. Yes. He does expect us to use common sense. And that's a good point to remember. Um, <coughs> wisdom and common sense have a lot to do with each other. Yes. Yes. And that's a good point. Uh, any other questions? Well, I hope I haven't discouraged you or... Uh, anyways, we hope uh, that you'll come back next week. Now, I hope you've finished or filled out your uh, registration form. We use those to uh, send you a, an announcement or a flyer for the next class, I do not. <coughs> Excuse me, I do not give them out to anyone else. They do not; they are not sold to anyone. You will you will not get a notice in the mail requesting money for some charity. I uh, I guard them highly. Yeah. So, uh, but I do like to know who is there and particularly the new people that have not been in these classes before. Any last questions before we break up? It will be a few minutes early, but uh, I would like to make sure that you uh, turn in your registration form. There will be no fee required this time. We ask that you consider a donation at the end of the, of the 10 meetings. And for those who want CDs, uh, Connie in the bright green dress over there will uh, help you on that. All right. Any last minute questions or comments? Yeah. Can you just order, like, like I know I'm going to be gone at a certain week, but you just order that CD. Yes, so yes. Just mark it down. And yes. It Make sure she knows that. Okay. All right. Yes. If you um. Only want one or two or the next week because you uh, won't be able to make it. Uh, let her know that, and that's acceptable, too. All right, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We know that we're covering a great deal of territory, uh, but luckily there are some similarities. So we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing as we go forward. Uh, Give us the strength and the grace. May your Holy Spirit enlighten us uh, with the wisdom that we are trying to acquire. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.